0: This episode of Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media and the producer of Pop Health Week. In the virtual studio today is my partner and lead co-host, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida based consulting firm. On today's show, we discuss recent developments on the COVID 19 front. The subjects we touch on include COVID 19 in the fall. Will there be a second wave? Stay at home fatigue. The natives are increasingly restless. The cost of herd immunity in the United States will likely involve more than a million deaths. The CDC's action to defer evictions. An American Medical Association study that reports one in four Americans report depression during the pandemic, noting this is another impending public health crisis. The Department of Health and Human Services funds a $250 million contract to, quote, defeat despair and inspire hope, end quote, on coronavirus and the FDA under pressure to fast track vaccine approvals. But first, the COVID-19 dashboard. At the time of this episode, global cases are clocking in just shy of 30 million with reported deaths just north of 930,000. While on the domestic front, the U.S. with roughly 4% of the world's population has recorded 6.6 million cases and in late September will likely cross the very grim milestone of 200,000 U.S. deaths. My key takeaway, we're nowhere near containing this virus. So what does it mean in general and specifically as we enter flu season? Just imagine all the influenza-like cases that present to an ED or an urgent care center. All the healthcare professionals are going to have to be ppe to the tilt, you know, because they don't know what, what they're dealing with up front. So what does it mean in general, Fred? And uh, will there be a second wave? What do you think?
1: I think, you know, one of the toughest things about this virus has been going on for a long time. You know, we've both been talking about that and, and, and living it and trying to protect ourselves and protect others. And we tend to see the numbers and the numbers get bigger. And oh, my gosh, the numbers. But behind those numbers are people. Right. And those are 180,000 people who have passed from this disease and died. And we forget those stories or, or don't know those stories. And there was I just read something fascinating, a group from a. Uh, Public, I think it was, went back and looked at the first 100 deaths in Chicago. Who were they? 70 of them were African Americans, right? Of the first 100. And while yes, this is an equal opportunity infectious agent, it hasn't been equal opportunity in terms of who it's impacted the most. And I think, you know, you and I have talked about this quite a bit. It really has impacted the minority community, lower socioeconomic groups, much harder than others. And that really stems out of the issue we've been focusing on with the show with the systemic racism that's in our system that creates areas where people have less access to healthcare, poor living, they can't work at home because they don't have internet or because they can't get jobs that allow them to do that. And then we see the impact. So I think that sort of is the base general thing as I look at it. How do you see it from your public health lens?
0: Well, I echo your sentiment. And I think there's quite a bit of discussion out there about the disproportionate burden that it's imposing on select at-risk communities. And clearly people of color and minorities are disproportionately bearing that burden. As we'll note, I got another article here, but, um, Yeah, there's there's uh, we're beginning to get numb from the numbers, and it's a good point to recognize that behind those numbers are people and massive disruption and suffering that's imposed on families. So this tracks back from my point of view about the lack of a federal strategy day one to take it seriously and really contact, you know, test Traced, isolate, and treat. I mean, that's the formula. And we really didn't jump on the bandwagon. It was pretty much left to individual states to decide amongst themselves amidst, quite honestly, very confusing and often conflicting federal guidance.
1: Right. And as you mentioned, these cities and various areas that are suddenly hot spotting or picking up, some of that's due to reopening strategies, some of that's due to just people saying, I've been locked up for so long, I need to get out. You know, I can't keep doing this. It is difficult. The message has been all over the places we've seen. And your points about, you know, testing, tracing, treatment, you know, quarantine and isolation are critical. There are ways to, to lower the burden of this illness spreading. There are ways to mitigate the risk. We know what they are. We learn more every day. We get better and better at this. Science changes; we need to change with it. And I think that's, you know, an underlying message as far as the flu this fall. I, I'm not a physician, so I can't speak to the impact of what might the two have together or the relative risk of these, et cetera. But I do think, obviously, talk to your physicians, talk to your doctor. If you don't have a doctor, find a place to get a flu shot. Um, And then the question becomes, do we have access for those shots in areas that need it? You know, have we set up those systems? And I know we've gotten better and better at getting flu shots out to people, but some people are hesitant to to get vaccines, some for reasons that maybe aren't quite what we consider right, and some because of fear from what happened decades ago, or how people were treated, you know, with various um, research protocols and things, which also leads to the whole issue of this uh, vaccine testing and can we get enough m- minorities, African Americans, Latinos, et cetera, into the trials so we know that the vaccine works equally well for all. And we have results that really represent the population, including gender-based, et cetera. Um, And that's going to be another issue that gets impacted, just like the flu vaccine, that will probably have some sort of an impact on COVID and the flu in the next couple
0: of months. You know, from a public health perspective, the the key thing the public often doesn't get is that uh, the true risk is uncontrolled community spread. And when does that happen? Well, that happens when you have a lackadaisical strategy about testing that varies from city to city, state to state, and doesn't have some standard template of how to work up and triage these kinds and differentiate these cases. And so, absent that, we're in the situation where we have the virus out of control, and it's running through the country in clusters of regional pockets So the heat maps are not looking good, Fred.
1: Yeah, in certain areas, certainly not. In other areas, they're doing better. You know, you're starting to see some of these states doing a little better. Um, But you do have these little outbreaks. The question is, what they're starting to see now, for example, is maybe it's not the large party that was held. Maybe it's five or six people in a study group that were just too close, weren't thinking, wearing masks. And suddenly those five create a little cluster. And so, it's something we've got to think about all the time and, and make part of our lives. And that's one of the things we've been discussing around with a lot of people is how do you incent or how do you create that environment where it just becomes a way of life to do the appropriate mitigation strategies, wear a mask, social distance, wash your hands, etc. cetera. Tough, tough one from a behavioral approach to keep going for a long period of time.
0: Right. And as we'll get into uh, shortly, an epidemic ends when it exhausts. The supply of eligible hosts. (laughs) And since this is a novel coronavirus, for there is no effective vaccine. So I hear you on the fatigue side. You know, we've got everything from Zoom fatigue, you know, virtual meetings versus in-person events that you and I find ourselves attracted to. There's this article uh, that was produced uh, recently called The Cost of Herd Immunity in the U.S., likely to involve more than a million deaths, hey, that cannot be our price. The The new Trump pandemic advisor pushes a controversial herd immunity strategy worrying many public officials. This was just published. Now, he's pushed back on this, and, and we're talking about uh, Scott Atlas, who has been added to the um, coronavirus task force and has really parted Uh, ways with uh, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci uh, as examples. So uh, I'll just read this briefly. One of President Trump's top medical advisors is urging the White House to embrace a controversial herd immunity strategy to combat the pandemic, which would entail allowing the coronavirus to spread through most of the population to quickly build resistance to the virus while taking steps to protect those in nursing homes and other vulnerable populations. Let's leave it at that. So we know he's basically denied that that's what he's advocating. What are you hearing and what do you think?
1: Well, I think, you know, one, he has said that that's not what he's pushing is herd immunity. But each of the components that he's talking about, while not saying the term herd immunity, lead in that sort of a direction that we're going to take those folks in the nursing homes or the vulnerable populations, keep them safe somehow you know, which is interesting when you consider he just came through Florida yesterday with our governor, and our governor has decided to add a little more reopening to the nursing homes. So if you're going to protect the vulnerable, and now you're saying, well, we got to worry about them, then what are you doing allowing for more reopening of that, as you're going to go do this strategy where everybody else is allowed to just go do what they want, in a sense, or open up much, much more. So I think it's an interesting approach. Obviously, the other side of that, the Dr. Fauci's and Dr. Burks and many of the other leaders around the country do not agree with that approach. I, and and I worry about it. You know, you look at what's happened in Sweden and their death rates. Yeah. And one of the things we keep saying is, and it's, it's sort of mm-hmm. frustrating, is we opened up and we talked about, you know, it's numbers, but there are people behind those numbers. Yeah. Well, it's more than the death rate. Yeah. There are people who have longer term <laughs> issues associated with getting COVID. They live. But they have other things going on for the rest of their lives or for long periods of time. And maybe it ends after a while. And so it's not like you're either dead or you get through it and you're okay. There is this middle ground. And we learn more and more about the virus, which makes it very difficult to say and just use one measure as, well, that's an outcome. It's an A or a B.
0: Yeah, and we're in a learning mode. This is a, a sort of a time series with data points. Right, they're going to continue to be discoveries here as we go along to help us better understand the disease profile, who's most at risk, and what are some of the likely consequences of having experienced the disease. Not the least of which is a concern by athletes about permanent lung or cardiac, you know, uh, impairment. So, uh, if you're 20 years old, uh, looking forward to a career in uh, football or basketball or But whatever, that's not a a promising prospect to to contemplate.
1: The other thing to just consider on this is that, again, as the statistics have shown, most of the individuals who have poorer outcomes have various other comorbidities, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera, et cetera. Right. and So those also disproportionately impact certain populations in the United States that may not be elderly. And and they're going to potentially be impacted by allowing a more relaxed approach to trying to mitigate and tamp the virus down before a vaccine is available. Just to
0: close out this um, uh, idea of not directly advocating for herd immunity, but benchmarking strategy to the Swedish model, I just want to remind everybody that um, Sweden has the highest COVID-19 mortality rates among the Nordic countries. Its death rate clocks in at 574 per million, far outnumbering Denmark's at 108, Finland's at 61, and Norway's at 49. In fact, the Swedish figure is closer to the just... Very grim situation that Italy went through at 587 deaths per million. So he may not use the word herd immunity, but it sounds like he's an advocate of kind of the let it rip crowd.
1: Absolutely. And one other point to that whole Sweden thing is everybody says, well, we got to do it for the economy. right? Right. But the Swedish economy has done no better than those other countries, as I understand it in the data that's come out
0: to this point. That's the other angle. Yeah, good point, Fred. Yeah, so this morning I heard on NPR that the, the CDC, the number one federal agency to protect us from um, pandemics, epidemics, you name it, uh, they're ordering a halt on evictions nationwide through December for people who have lost work during the pandemic and don't have good housing prospects. declaring this as a historic threat to the public health. And the theory here is that if they're evicted, they're going to do congregate housing with others and up the density of potential people who are creating vectors of disease spread. So I found that interesting. What do you think?
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, and it gets back to, as we've talked about on the show before, housing and its impact on your health care costs and communities have now recognized if we provide housing to people they actually use less health care you know they can begin to live a little healthier they don't have the issues of being on the street or in some um, other facility so i think it's absolutely on target it's sort of the flip side of the equation as we look at population health to say hey we need to do this for a population health strategy and keep them in that house which makes a ton of sense so it'll be interesting to watch this and again you're you're talking about groups that are living on the margins that are struggling and they tend to have much worse outcomes. So anything we can do to help them is going to overall benefit this country. And I think, and think of it from the flip side too. You have a landlord there Maybe they're funding it. Maybe the CDC or something, you get some funds to allow them to stay in the house, which, it, which also puts money into the economy, allows that landlord or that company to continue. Maybe they have some employees, you don't know, but things like that I think are also important. So um, it kind of has a ripple effect as we look at these things. And hopefully... We do, as you say, we need it. We, we really needed, I don't think we'll see it. <laughs> A national strategy for this. But who knows after the election? Maybe we will. Maybe yeah. we won't. Right. Um, and and uh,
0: the countdown's but, but, on. But we
1: need we <laughs> needed that and we needed. The, a larger picture view of all of these because we could coordinate it much, much better and have a much better impact for all of us. And open, safer, get the economy going at the same time that we protect people. But that whole ramp up speed is you can't just shoot off the line like a dragster. You know, you're going to blow up. So how do you do it? And that's where we've kind of lost our way.
0: So speaking about the opening safer space, you and uh, our colleague, Dr. Nick, have been uh, fairly active. Uh, what can you tell us?
1: Um, yeah it's been a really fascinating work we really started back in February putting together um, some ideas around how to help companies particularly small businesses originally open safer put together a course that um, is now going to be put out through the validation Institute as uh, open Safe is what they're going to call that and uh, we're doing a launch webinar and some other things but we've also been working directly with some universities and that's been just fascinating because if you think about it a university is an employer it's a company it's got faculty and staff they employ plus it has the issue of students like a school plus it has athletics like a school so you really get a deep broad look into issues that are faced to try to reopen safer and we've worked through those issues with a lot of uh, with a couple of universities now and they're reopening and we're watching closely as they are as they execute their strategy to keep it safer and so far You know, we've seen real variations from a University of North Carolina that just said we've had enough and threw in the towel to Notre Dame saying we're going to lock it for two weeks, see if we can tamp it down and reopen their classes. And they're going to start reopening to uh, each school using a different approach. Iowa essentially letting it just go or Alabama and things like that. You're seeing real high infection rates. So it's been interesting to watch the different approaches. We have been trying to bring in, we have medical advisors working with us, population health folks and behavioral health folks, and say, how do we create a safer way and try to do anything that could be done to help reopen safely? And that reopen safely has to be, obviously, some of it's online. You know, there are certain things just like, you know, opening a bar is really dangerous. Putting a bunch of kids in a small classroom or holding a bunch of gym activities is a high risk so you have to say maybe there are certain things we can't do maybe we move those outdoors maybe we don't do them at all and that's what we've been working through with some of our clients
0: and if you're just tuning in you're listening to pop health week my guest is fred goldstein president of accountable health llc and my partner co-founder at pop health week we're discussing recent developments in the news as we continue to grapple with the impact of the pandemic on the lives of americans For more information on the OpenSafe certification program offered by the Validation Institute, go to www.validationinstitute.com forward slash OpenSafe. And you have a vignette about a student who had experience both at UNC and Baylor. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so apparently we just saw this earlier before the show. It was on uh, uh, CNN. They interviewed a a student who's a freshman. At, at Baylor and and uh, Baylor had a little bit of an outbreak in a dorm that they've been monitoring closely right now and decided to shut down a couple floors on the dorm. Uh, and this student was in quarantine in the dorm. He and his roommate, they did not have COVID but they were quarantined and talked about his experience and actually said, it's been very interesting. I've learned a lot. They bring us food. You know, We can only go out to go to the bathroom or, or take a shower. Then we're in our room all the time. I've been studying a lot. But I came from North Carolina, and those schools have taken a different approach. And it's, it's, it's really interesting to watch. Perhaps we can uh, post the uh, link to the video up on the website.
0: Sounds good. So here's an interesting one for, from JAMA Open. Um, uh, one in four Americans report depression during pandemic. This is another impending public health crisis. They go on to say more US adults are experiencing depressive symptoms now that they than they were pre-pandemic and their severity has increased according to this survey. Their question was what is the burden of depression symptoms among US adults and what are the risk factors associated with depression symptoms. We talked about this earlier today. This is where the disproportionate impact is being born they note depression symptom prevalence was more than threefold higher than during the during the, the COVID nineteen pandemic than prior. Here are the factors associated with disproportionate impact: lower income, having exposure to more stressors, and then creates a risk of greater depression. Meaning, there's a higher burden of depression in the U.S. associated with COVID nineteen pandemic and that this burden falls disproportionately on individuals who are already at increased risk. So this is another public health crisis, which has been in the news somewhat, that with all these layoffs and uncertainty about the future and people having anxiety about paying rent, mortgages, and other bills, what do you, I mean, it's like, duh, yeah, there's depression in the country.
1: Absolutely, it's... Uh... It's like the tsunami of saying, okay, we're putting people's financial viability at risk. We're having people not be able to socialize like they could before we were social beings. And honestly, I'm sure you have as well as I, you know, being sort of cooped up in the house, working from the house and not going out a whole bunch, not interacting, uh, going to events with people obviously has an impact. I can feel it. Everybody responds to these things differently. We have to recognize those responses are real. And how do we help those individuals? How do we help all of us work through this? And I think it is one of the things that bothers me the most about what I've seen from this whole pandemic is there has not been this coming together of this country to say, we're going to work together and solve this, which would be applicable to all of the issues we've discussed so far. And this is clearly one that it's going to be an impact for a, a long time, I think. And we don't know what the impact might be on younger children in terms of their development over the years as they have missed out on interactive time and behavioral interactions with other kids or other people that may, may be fairly substantial. I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a social worker. Don't understand all of those things. But clearly, there's going to be some issues, whether it's us adults as depressed or children who are depressed.
0: Yeah, you're not that, but let me ask you to put your former uh, administrator hat on for mental health and behavioral health facilities. If you suddenly had a threefold increase for the demand of your services, what would that mean to you?
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know, and so here's an interesting thing about that. How do how are they accessing those services? Can they get to them? Are the services getting to the people who need it? You mentioned the lower socioeconomic groups are getting hit harder and that seems to be something that's resonated through it. You know, you with your public health background understand that perhaps better than most. We have these groups that we just seem to be anywhere you turn with this issue of the pandemic are getting disproportionately impacted by
0: it. I want to close if we can with, with two, two items. Uh, One is uh, I read in, Politico, that the Health and Human Services Department is bidding a $250 million contract to PR agencies with an objective to defeat despair and inspire hope on coronavirus. So, you know, I've made my thoughts known on some PR practices in the past. Uh, What do you think about this? Uh, Azar et al. hiring PR companies to tell Americans that They should be feeling good about this pandemic response.
1: It's what we just talked about. We it's it's I mean, the concept is right, but it needs to be natural and real. It can't be something that we're going to go push out a bunch of ads that actually everything is good, because what's going to happen today when you push those ads out is 40 percent of the people are going to say, yeah, baby, we're doing all right. And 40 percent are going to say oh, here it is again. You know, that's bunk. And it's it's got to be real. And it's not real right now. And until we as a country can figure out how yeah. we can come together to make it real.
0: And, yeah. yeah. And, and the juxtaposition of that JAMA open study with this <laughs> so-called, you know, HHS strategy just seems ironic, to say the so, least.
1: Yeah. So um, we've suddenly discovered that, Appropriately directed ads can solve your depression. Right. (laughs) It's the new treatment
0: protocol. Right. All right. Finally, uh, the other thing I found interesting is um, I'm calling it the Han foot and mouth and walk back per the Guardian FDA under pressure to fast track vaccine approval. The FDA might give the green light for a U.S. coronavirus vaccine before the normal clinical trial process had reached its conclusions. And we all know the gold standard out there in clinical trials is randomized clinical trials where you have control and placebo, right? So what what do you think about this? Uh, and I, I haven't heard the aftermath, but I believe he's kind of walked that back as well. But uh, what do you think about the FDA out there being possibly influenced by political versus uh, medical outcomes?
1: Well, you know, I don't think this is the first time the FDA sort of stepped in it. They said that, you know, convalescent plasma had a 35 out of 100 people, you know, were were saved or did better. And it was a, you know, a 35 percent change in risk. It was a clear mistake. And I'm really surprised that, you know, uh, Han could make a mistake of that magnitude without having recognized he was doing it. So in this case, I I will say this, I've heard from somebody else who was in the FDA for a long time that they, and this is a few weeks back, that their assumption was they're going to get the 30,000 enrolled in these trials. The minute they see a divergence in results, in other words, okay, we now see that the group getting the actual vaccine is better than the placebo group. The minute they see divergence, they would go ahead and give it a quick approval, and then potentially ask for a phase four, and get more data over time. Um, whether that's the right strategy or not, I'm not a person who could make that those comments. But this was from someone fairly sophisticated who thought that might be the way to get something out hmm. earlier and still have the opportunity to make sure it works in the end. Interesting. Hopefully, you've, you've identified enough risk up front that you've ruled that out, that it's okay. And you're seeing enough of a benefit to doing that versus not taking the vaccine.
0: That, that almost makes it somewhat appealing that the moment they know divergence between placebo and control, then they go ahead and uh, I guess, emergency youth authorization okay. followed by a phase four clinical trial to really measure, measure more of the longitudinal impacts.
1: Yeah, you then start bringing in all the results from these folks as you put it out there in the market right. and see and get and get a, a bigger data set that, that shows yay or nay. And there has been some discussion that I think I saw something in the that they only think four of the first ones will work and the bunch won't work or four won't work and stuff like that. And that those people would then be put into the other trials as a way to push that also.
0: And that is the last word in today's broadcast. I want to thank my colleague, Fred Goldstein, for his time and insights today. For more information on the OpenSafe certification program offered by the Validation Institute, go to www.validationinstitute.com forward slash OpenSafe. And do follow their work on Twitter via at valid underscore institute. Meanwhile, be sure to like and subscribe to Pop Health Week on your favorite podcasting platform and do connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. For Pop Health Week, Fred Goldstein and Health Innovation Media, this is Greg Masters. Please stay safe, everyone. We'll get through this together. Bye now.